He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, March 26, 2022. This is a terrific show. We lead off with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, his song, Strangers in a Strange Land. It sets the tone for the rest of this show, where we have award-winning Judge Gary Jackson, Denver Judge Gary Jackson, talking about Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, who was marvelous this week. She could not have been better. Gary Jackson, the first African-American in a lot of ways, in a lot of things. You will hear about that. He returns to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, followed by Tzvi Sperber, live from Poland, while we taped it. But he's in Krakow, where they are seeing a flood of refugees. I learned so much about my people, about Poland, about so many things. This is a show to enjoy and learn. So let's get going with our troubadour, followed by Judge Jackson and Svee Sperber. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, Troubadour. How are you, Craig? I'm doing well. Worried about the world, but thinking about pleasant things like Bones Highland. You don't even know who that guy is, do you? I do not. He's a star rookie for our Denver Nuggets. You have heard of Russell Wilson, right? Yes, yes. Russell Wilson's the guy who skunked us in the Super Bowl, and he will be quarterbacking for the Broncos. I know that. I'm excited. He's got a world-class smile. So does Bones Highland. Infectious kind of uh, looks. Have you followed it all? I know you're traveling. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and have you seen how she lights up a room when she smiles? You know, I have not. I listened to her. I listened to some of the um, uh, of the hearings um, yesterday and I think maybe the day before, but I have not actually seen her. Let me tell you, there's a picture in The New York Times and I know you get that paper. 
It is a shot of her husband sitting behind her, but her grown daughter, about the age of Rachel or Sarah, looking at her mom with such admiration, and it will bring a smile to your face. It's, It's one of the best pictures of the year, just showing that tight family unit and my gosh, some of the Republicans, Holly Cruz, oh, Lindsey Graham. Withering, a withering interrogation. It was stupid. Oh, I mean, trying to make her out she, with child I, pornography. Oh, anyway. Good Lord. Anyway, it took, it, yes, it takes, it takes great patience and uh, diplomacy to take those questions and say, thank you, Senator. <laughs> May I have another? Right. It's just yeah. performance. But Cory Booker, you know, for oh. this is a first. And uh, I love your song to set the stage this week because tell everybody about this song about refugees, what it is, how you came up with it. Well, I wanted this. This song was actually not it's it's not a um timely song in terms of the Ukrainian situation. It, it, it was written more during the Syrian uh, refugee problem of some years ago. And, and uh, I was just imagining what it would be like for um, a father to have to tell his family that they have to get out and get out now. And he goes at one point, you know, he goes to the, to his mother and says, we have to leave. We won't be coming back. And he takes his children and off they go. I mean, basically they're walking um, to, to safety. Right, it's Strangers in a Strange Land. That's the title of this hit song by Dave Gunders. It's so beautiful, and I think it's so cool that I know you are talking to me from the home of your father, Henry Gunders, and we have an amazing episode with him describing how the Gunderheimers had to get up and leave their hometown of Munich. That's very true. Yep. That's what gives yeah, you, you interviewed, it gives you interviewed you, dad. It's been, it's been maybe what, about a year and a half when you, you interviewed dad, um, which was, which was uh, a great opportunity for him. I appreciate that, Greg. Well, I think, uh, are you kidding me? I mean, that was a thrill for me. So say hi to Henry and I, your I song. I, I want to get right to it because the music is fantastic. The lyrics, unbelievable. And it may as well have been written for this past month. Uh, unprecedented refugees, nothing like it since World War II. And we're all paying attention. I am with Svi Sperber coming up on the show. He's rescuing people in Poland. What a wow. get that was. And Judge yeah. Jackson, talking about Judge Jackson, Judge Gary Jackson. But you, my friend, I want you to lead us off, and I want people to pay attention to the lines about the lines at the docks and references to train tracks and right and and just the yearning when you say I would give anything to know my family is going to be okay and about right. missing your home fleeing the violence and then you have the typical Dave Gunders elements with the stars and the crescent moon. How did you come up with this? I think this should be in a play like uh, the sequel to Fiddler on the Roof when you arrive in your new land, Strangers in a Strange Land. You could put a symphony orchestra to this song and it would work. It's fantastic. Thank you, Craig. Now, as far as a sequel, I don't think I could do a follow-up to Fiddler. That's that's one of my favorites. That's such a great, uh, that's such, such a great show and the music is beautiful, but 
But uh, I'll tell you what, when we both retire, maybe if we need a project, we can work on it. And then we already have a start because they arrive in their new land and what are they going to do? And just before we go, uh, and as a preview to this show, I think I've been unfair to Poland all my life because when we talked to Svi Sperber, this was where my people come from. You apparently come from a little further west, uh, Germany, at least part of your family. Right. The, the mm-hmm. bottom line is the Polish people are not bad people. They're great people. Look what mm-hmm. they're doing for Ukraine right now. And the fact that so many Jews got killed there, so did so many Poles. And Tzvi told me they had more righteous Gentiles than anybody. So wow. it's a great discussion coming up. But nothing tops your song, my friend. Um, who's singing in the background of this beautiful song? Um, let's see. It was my daughter, and I'm trying to think um, who uh, this was. Um, this was Sarah, I believe, and uh, it's been a while since I since I listened to it. It's um, it's Sarah. You know, you wrote it about Syrian refugees, but that was Putin too. Putin and. Uh, Russia's involved in all this crap. So Putin likes to make people run. Without further ado, Strangers in a Strange Land by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Shabbat Shalom, my friend. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks, Craig. Bye. Just look at us now, look what we've become We're refugees, looking all around We're not the only ones Plenty more I see, walk along the tracks Worried for each other Now face the fact, better get your things Tell my mother uh, We ain't coming back And it's one by one Doing what I can One by one Tell my wife I got a plan There's a line at the docks Lying on the faces with hatred I only want a chance provide for my family Knowing that they're safe well, I would give anything And it's one
Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book and appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's again my honor to welcome back a man who I knew in many capacities as a role model. He worked as a prosecutor in the Denver DA's office, went on to an amazing career in private practice, and now he's had a big third act as a judge. He's a family man. He's a George Washington High School guy. He's a Colorado legend, Gary Jackson, Your Honor. Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. How many Hall of Fames are you up to now? <laughs> I think I'm up to three. Okay, name them. Uh, you'll like this one, the George Washington Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Steve Feinsilver, began that Hall of Fame maybe four years ago, and I was in the inaugural class of the George Washington Hall of Fame with uh, Cleo Parker Robinson and uh, four or five other luminaries from George Washington. It does not get better than that. What other ones? Uh, just recently, I was inducted into the National Bar Association Fred Gray Hall of Fame. That took place in July of last year. That is about 244 uh, historic lawyers and judges, all black, from across the nation, including people like Thurgood Marshall, the Honorable Thurgood Marshall, the Honorable... Constant Baker Motley, the very first black federal court woman judge, 
Irving Andrews from Colorado. Uh, I think he is the only other Colorado one that's in the Hall of Fame. And Sonny Flowers' father, William Harold Flowers Sr., a civil rights lawyer out of Arkansas and one of the first National Bar Association presidents. They're all in the Hall of Fame with me. That is so cool. I'm learning all about Judge Motley because you are on Judge Jackson to talk about the other Judge Jackson. I told somebody I have Gary Jackson on to talk about Ketanji Jackson, and they said, are they related? And I said, I think most Jacksons are. I mean, <laughs> that that's pretty common name, Jackson. But keep going with your Hall of Fame. I've learned so much about Judge Motley that I never knew before. And if I could just tell you that I went to New York to watch uh, Jeff Paliuka and Laura Menninger defend uh, Ghislaine Maxwell in the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse. And wow. my gosh, I wow. walked around. They had so many historic artifacts. And I got an appreciation for the great man Thurgood Marshall, who, uh, you know, like you, he, he was a working lawyer for a long time before he was a judge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the last Hall of Fame that I got inducted into is the Denver Public Library, Colorado Hall of Fame, which I was inducted into on February 4th. And uh, with pride, uh, some of the other judges that have been inducted into that Hall of Fame are uh, Greg Scott, our first black Supreme Court Justice. Uh, Karen Ashby, our first black court of appeals judge. Uh, no, she wasn't our first. She was our first woman uh, court of appeals judge. Uh, the first black court of appeals judge, who's also in the Hall of Fame, is Raymond Dean Jones. Wiley Daniel is in the Hall of Fame as being the very first black U.S. District Court judge in Colorado. And James Flanagan the very first uh, judge of color in Colorado. Um, uh, he was uh, appointed in 1957 as a Denver Municipal Court judge. He's also in the Colorado Black Hall of Fame Denver Public Library. Now, that's amazing. And we have past episodes. I will put it in the liner notes to this webcast to go back on your history but I know that even though you're supposed to be retired, you're working all the time. And I want to use my time with you wisely because being a judge just came naturally to you. And it's probably born of your perspectives. GW, that's an interesting place. And the time you went there, especially so. And you have all these perspectives. And I've just been watching Katanji Jackson get grilled about her attitude about this, that, and the other thing, and especially about sentencing. And you sentence people all the time. I wonder what that's like. I was a prosecutor. You know that role, too. And I kind of took, well, what's fair? And usually there's a range of fair. And since I was the prosecutor, I'd argue toward that top end. I'd expect the defense attorney to argue on the other extreme. And then the judge makes the call. But you tell me, you've seen it from all sides. And Judge Jackson was hammered by, I think it was Josh Hawley. Do you regret 
that sentence you gave this fender, do you know he reoffended? That kind of crap. Uh, I don't know if you heard it all, but I did. But I know you think about sentencing. It's a huge part of being a judge. And it's the most difficult part of being a judge from my perspective. Because, I mean, you're dealing with... uh, um, you're dealing with victims, you're dealing with the defendant and whether or not that defendant is going to jail. You're dealing with uh, the defendant's children and uh, other dependents. You're looking at uh, what uh, is best for society in terms of keeping society safe, the public safe. You're looking at uh, what is... uh, uh, the most effective sentence that's going to rehabilitate someone. Um, there are so many different factors in terms of sentencing that I found that sentencing was the most difficult aspect of my job. I try not to think about it all that much because I was, well, I, I guess I had to, but it is sort of medieval uh when people would say, God, Silverman, you prosecuted a death penalty case. That's barbaric to kill people. I said, well, it's pretty barbaric to drag somebody away and lock them in a cage, right? And we do that every day all the time. Have you thought about that? It's kind of barbaric. Couldn't we do something that would work better? Well, like I said, you know, one of the things that um, I, as a judge, would look at is whether or not there are any uh, courses of rehabilitation so that uh, the person that uh, commits the terrible, terrible crime, that uh, one day that person uh, uh, can be a productive member of society. So I was never in a position that I had to impose a life sentence on anyone. So uh, in my position as the county court judge, you're looking at people that uh, may go to jail for, let's say, up to two years, um, but that person is going to get out of jail. And so uh, you are hopeful that in terms of your sentencing and what you say at sentencing is going to make a difference not only with uh, the defendant, but make a difference with uh, the people in the courtroom that are observing you impose the sentence. Now, we talked in the past about your athletic prowess, and we, we, we know that you uh, are a, a big man, but I've been in all sorts of courtrooms, not like you. You've been in a lot more, and occasionally people go off. And once in a while, it might be a lawyer. I, I, I bring this up because I was watching that Senate hearing and the way Ted Cruz was acting. It would not be tolerated in most courtrooms. And I'm wondering if you, how do you handle contempt or if a lawyer starts interrupting you? Well, um, as you say, Uh, Some of the behavior that you see in that Senate hearing is behavior that uh, would not take place uh, in a courtroom. Uh, Most of the time, uh, because of the way I approach people, trying to approach people in a professional way, uh, 
trying to approach people with a calm demeanor, that I would uh, uh, receive uh, uh, and and hopefully the, the person that I'm talking to is going to respond to me in the same way. But there are times when uh, um, somebody is just outrageous in their behavior. There have been times that uh, the N-word has been used against me. Uh, there have been times where uh, the behavior is so outrageous that uh, uh, the only remedy is that you put the person in jail, contempt. And um, you go through the, the type of contempt advisement uh, to try and calm the person down uh, so that uh, you don't have to use the ultimate hammer of putting someone in jail because of their uh, behavior, their outrageous behavior in court. I know you work all the time, but did you get to watch some of the hearing? Did you get a flavor of it? I I'm so proud of um, Katanji Brown Jackson. I I just see somebody who's risen through the ranks, a public school kid like you and me. I didn't make it to Harvard, but she became a public defender and she was involved in the system. I just admire her as incredibly smart, and her manner is just delightful. What a great judicial demeanor. Well, I've watched uh, maybe one-third of the hearing yesterday. I've not been able to watch any of it today because I've been uh, on the run all day long today. But I saw one-third of, uh, of the hearing yesterday, and, you know, I have the same feeling regarding her. You know, I have been the first in several different things, and I know what it's like to be the first. I mean, first of all, you've got to be uh, very, very smart, and you have to be very prepared to be the first. Second of all, uh, you got to be brave. you got to have courage um, because you are alone. You're by yourself. Uh, so, uh, I admire, uh, her presentation because it's clear to me that she's a brilliant woman. She's got great experience. She's got wonderful people skills. She is able, uh, to, to uh, speak in a manner that is understood by lawyers and lay people alike. So she's uh, um, uh, very, very well-spoken, uh, yeah, and um, I heard a description that I think really applies to her. She um, has a steel spine while wearing a velvet glove. Nice. Because uh, she is uh, um, tremendous under pressure. And uh, she um, has been able to handle outrageous behavior and not sink to the level of those people that are being uh, rude and crude to her. 
and, and her family. It, it's the American dream. You work hard. I, I know you grew up. People can listen to the old episode, but your family was wonderful. Her family, so, so loving, and there her parents were. It's the American dream, right? Well, it is the American dream, and you know what it is is her family today is a reflection of of America as it is today. America isn't uh, the America of the 20s and 30s and 40s, uh, we now have blended families. Uh, and I talk about blended in terms of races, people uh, intermarrying. You have blended families in terms of religion, where Jewish uh, uh, women are marrying Christian guys um, and vice versa. You've got... Uh, um, the blending of, uh, let's say, immigrants who are coming to America and marrying uh, families that have been here for a century. So uh, her family, with her husband, and uh, uh, I don't know if she has one child or two children, but it's a reflection of America today because it's a blended family of a uh, white doctor marrying a a black woman lawyer judge and uh, and uh, both of them excelling in their professions and excelling as parents here's what bugs me and i bet i've watched about 30 or 40% and we're taping this on wednesday afternoon and my god ted cruz treated dick durbin with contempt, and Dick Durbin really didn't crack the whip like a Judge Jackson would have. But you brought it way back to the 20s, 30s, 40s. Here in our hometown of Denver, they had the Klan going pretty strong. My grandpa, Harry, was a lawyer, and he couldn't go represent his clients because there were Klan judges sitting in that courthouse where you sit. And so... uh I feel like open racism is back to a degree. I, I, I listen to Lindsey Graham and Holly and Cruz, and I'm hearing stuff that really is kind of remarkable. I, I think Jimmy Kimmel had a soundbite that it, it's not a dog whistle anymore. We, we, we see you. We, I, I don't know. You can respond to that or not. But just in society in general, there's more overt racism and of course, it's corollary anti-Semitism than I can ever remember in my lifetime. Well, I think that um, it has increased. Uh, I think it's uh, more open in recent years. Uh, I think that um, some of our politicians have uh, have. Uh, accelerated and thrown fuel on the fire? Well, you know, they have, uh, yeah, because of their own behavior and because of uh, not concealing that uh, they are looking for support from uh, certain uh, types of individuals that these individuals feel um, like 
they have the um, openness to express uh, and act in a way that uh, uh, back that in years past uh, was hidden away. It's 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 coming now out into the open and being openly displayed. But I don't want to talk about that. No, no, I, I understand. But it's it's, rather... it's kind of like when we heard the chant, Jews will not replace us. Wow. In America, they're yeah. walking with tiki torches. And the thing is, and you probably wrestled with this. I have a time or two. You, It, it struck me the irony that poor Judge Jackson, who seems like the most moral, upright, good family person, her parents are there, and it's like she's a sex offender, that she likes child pornography. I mean, give me a break. And and then the other line of attack is, you know, we're not treating you the way we treated Brett Kavanaugh, who, of course, was, you know, a teenager accused of doing this or that. And, and yet Hollywood... Uh, no, it was Cruz who said, yeah, if an 18-year-old had a bunch of child pornography, put him away for 50 years. And I mean, 50 years for an 18-year-old? For, you know, so I, I just thought it was remarkable. And she sat there, she took it. But I do want to ask you about this, Judge Well, let me, let me, yeah, let me interrupt you just for a moment because um, there's a book that is important to read. It's called Showdown by Will Haygood, and it is an in-depth book about the Senate Judiciary hearing for Thurgood Marshall back in 1967. And uh, the same claims that they're making against uh, uh, Judge Brown Judge uh, Brown Jackson were the claims that they were making against, against Thurgood Marshall, in that he was soft on crime, that uh, he was not uh, intelligent enough to be a Supreme Court justice, and that uh, uh, if uh, he became a judge on the Supreme Court, he was going to, uh, in all of his rulings, be ruling for um, um, the defendants. Uh, well, well, not only the defendants, but basically uh, what was considered back in that day uh, the left-leaning movement, you know, the movement of people attempting to gain civil rights, the movement uh, of, uh, of equality for women, that he, uh, because of his background, would have that type of leaning. Well, that was so true. What, but, well, but did saying, they try? Did they try to smear him with sex crap? You know, you represented well, they, this or that. Well, they tried to smear him with uh, that he would be uh, uh, lenient, uh, soft on on uh, criminal defendants because in his private practice he represented many, many black people that were being charged with crimes across the country. So they were saying the same thing about him that they're saying about uh, Judge uh, um, Brown Jackson, that uh, he was going to be soft on crime. You have a little reluctance to call her Judge Jackson because you think of yourself that way. 
I mean, there have been so many great Judge Jacksons, too. Robert Jackson, he was great. And, uh, yes, he was. But you know what? I uh, Yeah, go ahead. You, you I react. Say, yeah, Jeff, you, Justice Jackson was great, because if you remember, he was a prosecutor. Nuremberg. Uh, in Nuremberg. And then he was one of the... Uh, uh, one of our best Supreme Court justices. Yes. So we've we've had some great uh, Jacksons as judges. No doubt about it. What about Andrew Jackson? Do you take any credit for that, or stay away? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't take any credit for any of the Jacksons. I because I think that uh, um, with our 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 new potential Supreme Court justice, uh, she she has made it on her own. She has demonstrated that uh, uh, she can handle uh, uh, the job that is before her. And uh, she's proven it at every level in the legal profession that she's been in. And now she has to do it as a witness. Have you ever had to testify? I've done it a time or two. It's sort of fun, I think. But um you, it's you know, such I an have. odd it's such an odd thing for her to be sitting there testifying yeah well you know i've i've had to do it as an expert witness i've testified i've testified as a witness to a personal injury accident i have uh testified uh, uh as a victim of a crime uh so uh, i've had to testify uh, uh but Never in a setting that has been as um, uh, difficult or as contentious as what uh, uh, the judge is going through right now. I know. They're putting on a show, and apparently that appeals to some people. God help us. But one thing that underlies everything, and I've tried to address it on my podcast it's critical race theory. Now, I know that's a law school theory, but in terms of just teaching the truth about uh, American history, it's like the Alamo. Let's teach people really that was about slavery instead of the myth that Walt Disney created. I'm all for that, and let the chips fall where they may. To me, that's what critical race theory is, and as a parent, I want my kids taught the truth it shouldn't it be that simple well that's the way i look at it it's um um uh, telling people the, the true facts the true history uh and not trying to sugarcoat it and not being uh concerned that it may cause certain people to feel uncomfortable you know i i think about that um, when I think about my dad coming back from World War II, having uh, uh, served uh, in World War II over in Europe, a black soldier in a black division, because at that point in time, uh, black and white soldiers could not uh, fight together. Uh, he got three bronze stars. Uh, but when he returned uh, uh, as a civilian, uh, he didn't get the same GI benefits that other white soldiers got. In other words, when he purchased uh, his first home in Denver, he did not get uh, the type of uh, GI benefit that would allow him to uh, uh, purchase a home. Now, 
that's a fact that there were different benefits given to black soldiers. Now, that information is uncomfortable to me today. That information should be uncomfortable to um, it is to me. To, to it is to my dad. You know, he graduated West High in 44, got drafted, was willing to serve, but then the war ended because brave guys like your dad. My dad did two years stateside, Texas, Oklahoma, and he went to DU on the GI Bill. Correct. Correct. And so they wouldn't even give the GI Bill for education to African Americans? That was unavailable to many black soldiers. Mm, and terrible. so my uh, dad had to get a loan from a lending agency uh, that was making available lo to loans to black people. Uh, typically, back in those days, in the 40s, there was redlining. So black people were either living in the Five Points region or, like my family, we uh, had property in North Cherry Creek uh, because at that point in time, uh, in the 20s and 30s, when we originally got our property, uh, North Cherry Creek was where the city dump was. And so there were poor people, there were black people, brown people that uh, were living in that area because it was a blighted area. And so, um, but I know for a fact that my dad and mom did not get the GI Bill in order to purchase their first home. They had to go through a lending group that was mm. lending money to black families. Well, that stinks, but they overcame it. So it's a happy ending, including North Cherry Creek, which became the trendy part of town. Way to go, Jackson family. But I, I don't want to give up on the first because the first thing I thought of when analyzing Judge Jackson was another person who has all these firsts. She's the first African-American woman to be on the Supreme Court. I predict she'll be confirmed. And uh, tell us all your firsts. Well, when I became a deputy district attorney in Denver in 1970, I was the only black deputy district attorney in the state of Colorado. So I was not the first because uh, I know that Judge Flanagan uh, in the late 40s and early 50s was a deputy DA in Denver. But at the time that I was a DA in 1970, I was the only uh, black African-American deputy district attorney in the state. As you know, there are probably 400 uh, deputy DAs throughout the state. Um, All right, you know, I'll give you that one. What else? On, on, on the, uh, as I went through my prosecution years, uh, I stayed with the Denver DA's office for four years, five years. Then I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was the only black federal prosecutor in the Tenth Circuit. So we're talking about, about five states, Utah, New Mexico, Wyoming, um, Colorado. And so in that five-state region, I was the only black uh, assistant U.S. Attorney. I'll give you that one, too. You're a trailblazer. What else? On the social side, uh, the Denver Athletic Club, it used to be one of the premier um, social recreation downtown club. I became its first black member in 1972. 
Now, I'm not saying they were part of the Klan, but we're talking about the 20s. And didn't uh, those guys hang out right there near the DAC? I think they picked jury pools, yeah. But but you you, you made a move along by getting to be the first African-American member. So that was in 1972, and uh, Marshall Fogel was the first Jewish member uh, two or three years ahead of me. And um, I'm proud to say that he and Dale Tooley were the sponsors of me to be a member of the Denver Athletic Club because Dale Tooley thought that uh, that type of networking with the uh, movers and shakers in Denver was important in terms of my growth as an attorney not only as an attorney uh, in the Denver District Attorney's Office, but uh, as an attorney in my career, uh, being a a part of that uh, social structure. You know, I got to interview interview Federico Pena about Dale Tooley and his perception of his politics. And uh, I can't remember exactly. He was nice. But do you think Dale was progressive, conservative? How would you describe him? I mean, I I got hired by him, but I didn't know him anywhere near as well as you. I would consider him to be one of the most progressive men that I had met as a young attorney. When he came to the Denver DA's office, he created the most diverse law firm in the state of Colorado. Because what he did is he brought in seniors such as O. Otto Moore and uh, Brooke Winnicky, uh, who was the who became the head of the appellate division. She was a senior woman out of Wyoming. He brought in black attorneys such as Norm Early and and uh, uh, Raymond Dean Jones and uh, uh, a couple of other black attorneys I can't think of right now. He brought in. Uh, Hispanic lawyers, such as Bill Lucero, and he brought in a number of women uh, to not only just be segregated in one section of the DA's office, but to be trial attorneys and to be uh, chiefs. Um, and so, in my opinion, in now what about what about what about my tribe? I mean, eventually he started <laughs> hiring some Jews too. I mean, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, we know that the DA prior to uh, Dale Tooley had a number of Jewish lawyers uh, that were prominent under Mike McKevitt, Marshall Fogel, Lynn Chesler. They were prominent. Irv Bornstein. Yeah, they were. Yeah, Peter Bornstein. So they were they were they were uh, they were. uh, No, no, I'm thinking of of Irv Ettenberg. Was he a prosecutor? Right. Yes, yes, he was. So Herb Edinburgh was a, a mentor for me. And so when I came into that office and uh, he was there for about a year before he became a judge. But as soon as he became a judge uh, and I would try cases in front of him, he was the type of judge that had an open door policy. He would have me come into his chambers and he would critique uh, my trial skills, what I could have done better, uh, what I did well. Uh, where I could improve uh, in terms of my skill. And so uh, I I look at both Judge Irving Edinburgh and Judge Zeta Weinshank as the two training judges that I had as a deputy DA in the county court division. 
And there were a lot of Jews in the system, so I'm hardly the first. And we already brought up Steve Feinsilver and his dad, Judge Feinsilver. He used to win uh, when they voted for judges. Same thing you are now. Do you remember how he used to lead the field? And he was a Republican. (laughs) Do you remember that? I do. You know. Yeah, I don't. I, I really don't. It would be, uh, I paid that. attention because we're sure tell relatives with the fine silvers. His uh, Aunt Anne, my Uncle Nate. Anyway, Sherman Feinsilver was Republican. I think he was appointed by Nixon or Ford to the federal bench. But let's go back to your firsts because I don't think you're done. We have DA, U.S. Attorney, DAC. What else do you have a first or a well, number one? Well, what I consider is creating the Sam Carey Bar Association. That was created in 1971 by seven lawyers. I was one of the seven. But that first is so important is that because that started the specialty bars in Colorado. And when I say the specialty bars, I'm talking about uh, after the Sam Carey Bar Association was formed, the Hispanic Bar Association was formed. Then the Women's Bar Association was formed. The Asian Pacific American uh, Association was formed. Then uh, the LGBTQ bar was formed. Now, each of those specialty bars are an offshoot of majority bars. Uh, You know, the Denver Bar Association, the Colorado Bar Association. So those are offshoots of those bar associations that uh, were created that, uh, to uh, allow attorneys of color, women, uh, those that make, let's say, uh, have a gender difference, to be in an environment where they feel comfortable, where they can act as leaders. I think that that is so important. Uh, from these uh, for these specialty bars, is it gives an opportunity for uh, lawyers of color, women, to be in leadership positions, and uh, from the Sam Carey Bar Association, we had individuals that became president of the Denver Bar, became president of the Colorado Bar, became president of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association. So Became the first African-American district attorney in Denver, normally. That's correct. So uh, these specialty bars are a place where people can be groomed. People can, uh, as I say, become leaders and uh, become people of prominence in all facets of the bar association. Because when when I talk about being prideful of being in the Hall of Fame for the National Bar Association, the reason why I'm so prideful of that is because black lawyers back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s could not be members of the American Bar Association because of Jim Crow policies. And so we had to make our own. And so that was the outgrowth of the National Bar Association in 1924. And the reason why I feel so much pride that I'm a member of the Hall of Fame of that National Bar Association. You deserve it. And you are super smart. So is the other Judge Jackson. 
I mean, I watched her. I listened to her while I worked out, and she's so smart. It's kind of intimidating. You can see that she's just clicking on all cylinders all the time, and the temerity of Tucker Carlson to say, I want to see her LSAT scores. Just watch her. Listen to her. She's so smart, and she's not using a teleprompter. I I mean, is it, what's going on? Do you think there are just some people who cannot accept that uh, Judge Jackson is a lot smarter than they are? Well, what you see from Judge Jackson in terms of uh, her presentation is that uh, – she could be a teacher. She could be a uh, law professor. She could be a professor in college because what she is doing is she is teaching those individuals that are asking questions of her, and she's teaching America. She is uh, letting people know uh, how uh, under the Constitution, there's the right of representation that uh, a, a person who's indigent has the right to, to be represented in our court system. And she's giving the history of that right to representation. That was that was a, a teaching moment that uh, that you saw when she answered that particular question. I think she's uh, uh, she has that ability to, uh, with her demeanor, she is being able to uh, uh, verbalize and educate people as she uh, gives her responses. I don't know if it's me, because I just don't like Cruz and Holly, and I like to come to the aid of a woman. I I just I don't like the bullying and it kind of goes back to this open racism and for those of us who have taken the time to listen to more than just sound bites we can see that she's a superior candidate but I'm afraid that uh, on the other side you know they'll say oh she it's about child pornography when really what are you talking about with this lovely mother of two so I, I agree. She's risen above. I hope everybody can rise above and, and be fair. That not that what a judge really has to do when it comes right down to it? You have to rise above a lot of things. And to, to be the person who says you're going to go to jail for this amount of time, it, it, it's such an awesome power. Um, and you do it every day. And, and, and you're beautiful at it. it, it just tell us about being a judge, and and did you always know you would be so good at it? You know, I didn't know. Um, you know, it. I, I have to say that uh, being a judge was the only seat in the courtroom that I hadn't really done as a lawyer. In other words, I had been a prosecutor. I had done criminal defense work. I had been a plaintiff's lawyer in civil and corporate cases. I'd been a defense lawyer in civil and corporate cases. I had been an expert witness through my career. And in my career, I have appeared in front of hundreds of, of, of judges from municipal court to, to federal court. So, you know, I 
know from experience what is a good judge, what is an excellent judge. And I think I knew from experience how I wanted to present myself in court as a judge. So I had, uh, I didn't become a judge until I was 68 years of age. So I had um, almost uh, 40 years of being a trial lawyer to basically hone my skills to be a judge. Um, and I had the confidence that uh, um, it, in being a trial judge, I was going to be uh, effective. And I think that uh, based upon uh, my eight years of being a judge and, and some of the uh, um, awards that I've received, uh, it, I demonstrated that uh, I could be at the top of the profession as a judge uh, like I was at the top of the profession when I left as a trial lawyer. Right. You should be on the Supreme Court, except they're always looking for somebody younger. You know, this Judge Jackson, I think she had eight years on the trial bench, which will serve her well. You've served our community so well. Again, a friend of the podcast. Who better to talk about Judge Jackson than Judge Gary Jackson? Thanks a lot for coming back into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Craig, thanks for having me. Look forward to uh, seeing you next time. All right. See you around campus. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye, Craig. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. 
I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Gosh, I love podcasting. You meet the most interesting people like Svi Sperber, and he is from jroots.org. Mr. Sperber, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us where you're speaking to us from. So I'm actually speaking to you from Krakow in Poland now. Uh, not far from a distribution center that we have here for Ukrainian refugees. That's great. You can lean back just a little bit because I'm looking at you and your mic is picking you up fine. You don't have to go uh, too close. But my gosh, thank you for what you are doing. The whole world is focused on Ukraine. And me being a Jewish fellow, I'm very interested in this part of the world because my people come from the Pale of Settlement somewhere I had one grandfather born in Lodz, L-O-D-Z, Poland. I've never been to Poland. You're right there in Krakow. First of all, tell us about yourself. Do I detect a bit of a British accent? So I grew up in uh, Britain, um, and I moved to Israel when I was 18. Um, And I've been involved in education ever since. Uh, Jewish education. And part of what we've been doing for the last 15 years where I set up this organization called J-Roots, which deals with Holocaust education. So like, for instance, the town of Lodge that you said your family was from, uh, we guide there a lot with lots of groups. I was actually there a couple of days ago uh, with a group. And uh, the Pale of Settlement that you just spoke about, of course, in the Ukraine, you know, which was so much of the homeland of the Jewish people uh, a couple of hundred centuries ago. Um, we, uh, in Jewitz, we basically have been dealing with this whole idea, um, about Holocaust history and the lessons that we need to deal with from the Holocaust. And that's one of the reasons that I'm now here in Krakow, because of the idea of making sure that we don't be seen as just bystanders. I'm a fourth generation Denverite, but for that one grandfather born in Poland, And yet, uh, I'm so poorly traveled. I went to Israel one time. I learned a great deal, including the fact that people like you, and I don't want to lump you into a group, but one of the most esteemed professions in all of Israel is to be a tour guide, is to be a historian. And it takes some education. And am I right? You are... Uh, one of the main emissaries of the Jewish people by doing exactly what you are doing, educating people. And why is that so important for Israel and and for you to dedicate your life to doing it? Okay, so I would say uh, there's no doubt about it. It's it's looked looked upon as a very good profession from the point of view of the fact that we're trying to take our history and bring it alive. You know, we can leave, if you go to Rome, for instance, you can deal with the archaeology that's in Rome. It's all well and good, but sometimes they're just blocks of stones and the the educators there or the guides there, I'll say, 
we'll teach you about the history, the archaeology, the stone. In Israel, at least through J-Roots and everywhere that we guide, and we guide all over the world where there's Jewish history, the idea is to take the stone and make it alive. And what's the message behind the stone? It's not just about the date that these things happened. It's not just about the people they happened to. It's how can I take that from 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago and turn them into something that's meaningful in my life? That's what we intend to do, and that's what we even try and do, by the way, with the Holocaust history, is turning the messages of the Holocaust and internalizing them and understand what we do with them too. That's fantastic. So say somebody like me from Colorado were to contact your organization, J Roots, and say, I don't know much of anything about my family lineage. I know one grandfather, Sam Sontag, born in Lodz. Would you go from there? Would you have the capacity to explore my roots and design a journey for me? Absolutely. We uh, we can do that with, for the Sontag family. You know, uh, Lodge is unique because in Lodge, and I don't know when you said you were, I think, fourth generation Denverite? Yes. Third generation Denverite? Um, but it, let's say you weren't, let's say you were second generation Denverite. In Lodge, because everybody was buried, even in the time of the ghetto, even in the time of the Second World War, and they were buried in uh, individual graves, we can actually trace everybody back. We have the uh, recorded um, uh, tombstones on record today, and we're able to go back all the way to as far as somebody who's being buried. Yeah, we can actually trace everything uh, today, lots and lots of things. And with the help of genealogists, we can find exactly where they lived. I did do one of those 24 and me, the, the DNA test, whatever they call yeah. it. And I'm almost pure Ashkenazi. And I looked that up. It means Jews of the German land. And then they got pushed eastward. But you know a lot more about it. I don't think my ancestry is just in Lodz. It's probably all over the Pale of Settlement. Would you be able to figure something like that out for me? So Lodz is actually in Poland, uh, and it's closer to the German border. The Pale of Settlement was further towards Russia, okay, which is a, 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 a much on the other side of Poland and the other side. So it seems like your family came from both of those parts. Could well be that they came from the Pale of Settlement, and they were looking for jobs in Lodge. Um, Lodge became a very big textile area and it supplied a lot of jobs to Jews and to non-Jews, but to, to Jews. And Jews migrated from the area of the Pale of Settlement towards Lodge for that. Well, I do know this about my grandpa, Sam, who I did not know well, and he's the guy who came over and he was a haberdasher. So maybe that makes sense, but gosh, this is fascinating. Uh, how many, I, I mean, I bet a lot of families contact you and then you assign somebody to lead them on a trip to discover their exactly. roots? Yeah, many families that do contact us and we try and help out and try and work with uh, every family that does contact us. You know, it's just a, an email away and then we can hopefully, you know, try and build the itinerary accordingly, according to what you want to be able to see. 
Well, I think the whole world is focused on your area right now. Why is it that all hell breaks loose, World War One, World War Two, now, God forbid, World War Three? What is it about that area of the world that seems to always be in the center of the storm? It's a very good question. Uh, but if you understand that the Ukraine itself has a lot of resources, um, if we look at the particular thing today, uh, Ukraine was known in the Second World War as well. And the reasons the Germans invaded Ukraine, the Nazis invaded it because they were known as the breadbasket. And it's the same thing today. I can't remember the figure, but I think they were of what they were talking about. Over 2 billion people are relying on Ukraine's wheat. So I know that you've got these massive fields in Texas or whatever else it may be. But the Ukraine is a supporter of many of the economies in the Middle East and in Africa for, for the produce of wheat. From the point of view of uh, natural gases and resources for Russia, um, the area of Crimea, of course, was important to them. Uh, so that it, it's, a, it's an interesting idea of how to look at this war. It's not a war just to take over land for land. This is about the idea of getting the resources that the land has. Um, and it's, of course, very, very dangerous because it, will spill, it, it could spill over to other parts of Europe. Uh, the only, I would say, one of the things that uh, is a deciding factor at the present moment is because Ukraine is not part of Europe, okay, or wasn't part of Europe, and it's not part of NATO, Russia felt they could do something uh, in this place and everybody would ignore it. The Second World War is a little different issue. And that's because Hitler very much could not stand the idea of the Russians. The Bolsheviks, communism to Hitler was a disease. Um, just like, of course, world Jewry needed to be annihilated, the thousand-year plan of what's known as the Mein Kampf was also to be able to take the Russians after a thousand years and to get rid of them too. So that whole side of the world as well has been affected, as we said, in the Second World War, in the, in the Shoah, in the Holocaust as well. I mean, there's a popular book out called The Left is a Mental Disorder, Liberalism is a Mental Disorder. That was Hitler's perspective. He didn't like uh, communism, and he associated that with Russia and Jews and accordingly wanted to wipe them out. Absolutely. Absolutely. His famous Beer Hall Push, which is in 1923, is uh, the first basically act that he tries to do, which is a failure. It's against uh, the Communist Party in Germany. Wow. I spent 16 years as a prosecutor in Denver, and I'm still involved in the criminal justice system. And it seems to me that maybe this is a property crime. I know Ukraine has great natural resources, but I also look at the Russian church starting there and it being an important part of the Soviet Union, according to Putin, and it's a little like domestic violence. Like, you, you're you going to leave me? You're going to go off and be on your own? You think you're going to do well? Well, I've got other plans and I've got big guns and I'm a domestic abuser and I'm going to mess you up. I'm not going to let you have a happy life. And this is what you get for leaving me. Is it personal like that with Putin? Uh, I think it is. Uh, look, you know, 
To the north of, uh, of Ukraine is, of course, Belarus. Belarus is still under, if you want, Russian control. Okay, Belarusia. And then further north is Lithuania. Lithuania is, uh, you know, it's it was part of Russia and they managed to leave. Ukraine, he still felt that he could have some control over. It's close enough to Russia. It had the resources that he wanted. And he said, you know, you know, who do you think you are to go to NATO? Who do you think you are to go to Europe? You're part of Mother Russia. That's who all these people are. And again, many of the people in Crimea did distinguish themselves as Russians at one time. Uh, he basically said, I'm coming home. That's what he said. And he went, came to take over his, uh, you know, part of his heritage, part of his, uh, you know, if you want, his territory, which he hasn't been for over 30 years. But he didn't care. And just walked in to the country. It's a, it's a, it's a, the, what's taken place is a humanitarian disaster on a scale that we haven't seen since the First World War. It's very different to the Second World War. The Second World War, there was mass extermination of the Jewish people and of other populations, okay, which took place. But of the Jewish people, of course, that was the idea uh, during the First World War. This, excuse me, Second World War. The First World War um, was more, more to the point of a migration of populations from one place to the other. And that's why it's sort of very, very, very similar to the First World War from that perspective. Gosh, we're in the year 2022. I never thought something like this could happen again. And what distinguishes this from World War I or World War II is the immediacy of uh, the videos and the sound. And look at us. We're talking to each other over Zoom. We're watching this nonstop on American television. President Biden's over yep. in Europe, and there's never been anything like it with little kids, women, maternity hospitals, uh, millions of people streaming toward you. We've rarely had this kind of humanitarian crisis, and never have we had our eyes on it like this. What is it like from your perspective in Krakow? So, uh, look, Krakow is a little calmer uh, because it's two hours from the border, but... Uh, Jay Roots uh, is working with the refugees the whole time. So we have a, uh, a distribution center where we're sending food out and back into Ukraine, medical supplies back into Ukraine. Um, we are putting up around about 160, 170, close to 200 people, I would say, a night, every night. Uh, and it's women and children. Um, and we're, doing, we're running daycare centers for the, for the children and many other things that we're doing. However, when you see the, um, the scenes that you've seen on TV, but you actually see them in person, of women carrying their child in one hand and a plastic bag in the other, and that's the only goods that they have and the only, um, the only uh, possessions that they've brought across the border, it's heartbreaking. It's totally heartbreaking. And as you said, we never thought in our lifetime that we'd see this again. Okay, you know, it's sort of passe. Now, it's it's taken place, and it's taken place in a very cruel and brutal manner. And uh, over two million refugees have crossed the border to Poland, and I believe that you're going to see a few, quite a few more. It's slowed down at the moment while they sort of understand what the Russian plan is in Ukraine. So every time they attack, 
more people cross the border. At the present moment, it's sort of a little bit slower. Um, like, for instance, last night in a refugee center that we're running, and we can have 100 people sleeping in that particular refugee center, we had 20 beds free. It's the first time since the beginning of the war that we had 20 beds free. Now, this is amazing because, Jay Roots, this is not your job. What did you just set up some side thing? I know you're taking donations. I encourage everybody to go jroots.org. Um, am I right? You guys are doing something you never even contemplated before, or maybe you did plan for this. No, we, we never contemplated to do this at all. Um, but as I said, you know, uh, the education that we've been giving over, we could not see ourselves as just being bystanders. When, you when you're a bystander, you become a perpetrator many times. And we could not allow that to happen, especially after all the 15 years and even longer that I've been dealing with Holocaust education. That at the end of the day, okay, if I don't do something, then really what have I been speaking about? And so we got up and we did what we needed to do. That's all we that's what we, we felt that we needed to do. And we got involved in doing things and seeing what we could do on the ground because of the logistics that we have built here in Poland because of our Holocaust trips that we do here. Uh, we had many, many contacts and we were able to solve problems very quickly on the ground uh, and also get stuff into the Ukraine very quickly. So as we speak at the moment, uh, I have a medical convoy on its way to Kiev which has crossed from the Polish border into Kiev, and it's navigating now the roads to Kiev. And as you know, the Russians are surrounding Kiev, but we've got people that are heading towards Kiev now with a big truckload of medical uh, equipment for, for people there. Oh, my God. That's a lot of danger. I mean, who do you put on yeah. that assignment? Volunteers, I assume. Yeah, so we've, uh, we've got a Ukrainian crew. They're working with us. Um, and uh, uh, the phone goes 24-7, it really does. Uh, in the middle of the night, whatever it may be, for requests for help, we, we extracted people from Poland on buses. We're doing all sorts of things that with, excuse me, from Ukraine on buses. Um, we're doing all sorts of things just to try and alleviate the suffering and to try and help people with whatever we can. Before this conflict, which started a month ago, and I'm proud to say that Joe Biden just announced we're not going to be bystanders in America. We are going to take Ukrainian refugees as well. Um, I, I want to talk about Poland because I'd say I had a negative image of Poland. They chased yep. my people out during World War II. My image was your average Pole. Hey, here's $5. Show me where a Jew is. And they did it because there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Same with Ukraine, and I'm ignorant. We do have a Bobby R. Park in Denver honoring uh, what happened at Bobby R., and Ellie Wiesel came out to dedicate that back when I was in high school in Denver quite a while ago. But I know just a bissel. But am I right? Poland kind of embarrassed themselves during World War II with the way they capitulated and acted, and now they're distinguishing themselves with the way they're acting now. Or, or do, do I have that right? Should I have more Rachmanis for Poland? You tell me. So, uh, first of all, your, the latter statement about Poland is without a doubt true. Okay, from the perspective of this country has gone beyond anyone's uh, thoughts of how far they would go to try and accept Ukrainian refugees and help them. 
you have absolutely no idea how the whole country is enrolled in this idea of trying to help their neighbor. It's absolutely incredible to see. And you have to take your hat off to them. Um, in the uh, Second World War, and this is probably why, you know, you thought, you thought this way in the Shoah and the Holocaust, there's no doubt about it. The Ukrainians were not easy with the Jews. They were some of the worst uh, atrocities that took place. Happened with Ukrainian guards, without a doubt. And in Poland, there were a number of atrocities as well. Now, at the same time, we've got to remember a couple of things. Number one is they were occupied by the Germans. Number two, three million non-Jewish Polish people were killed in the Second World War by the Germans. Some of them were gassed in the same gas chambers as Jews. And, um, and they have the, the highest amount of righteous amongst the nations of non-Jewish people who risk their lives to save Jews. The highest amount comes from Poland. Now, you can tell me, well, that's obvious because there were the most amount of Jews in Poland. And so more people knew each other, and that's why they helped each other. But when you understand that Poland was the only country that if you gave a glass of water to a Jew, to a non-Jew, excuse me, to a Jewish person as a non-Jew, you were punishable by death, mm. and your family could be killed too. And then you have to wonder, well, would I do such a thing? Would I do such a thing, you know, today to, uh, to another people? So they got a bad rap. Now, again, when they did things that they shouldn't have done, uh, like, for instance, the very famous atrocity that takes place in a town in the north of Poland called Jedwabna, where over a thousand Jews are burnt in a barn by Polish people, that's an atrocity that should not be forgiven. That's an atrocity that these people need to be taken to court for. But the vast majority of everything that will take place in Poland, and we can't forget that, is orchestrated and done by the Germans or by the neighbors called Ukraine, okay, who also, unfortunately, were involved in that. And so we can't forget that, and we have to be, be, be wary or be, be aware of that and look at the bigger picture, the macro instead of the micro picture. When you come to Poland today, I mean, I've been here now for a few weeks, you're just blown away. It's abnormal for a society to do what it's done uh, and open its doors the way they've done. Over 2 million Polish, excuse me, Ukrainian refugees have entered into Poland. And they found the places to see and found the places to eat and made sure they're clothed. And people have opened up their doors to them and put them in their houses. Okay, this whole thing, J-Roots is uh, basically we started because we had a uh, trip and one of our security guards on the trip received a phone call from his wife. The war had broken out, and she, uh, she phoned uh, her husband and said to her husband, I've just accepted seven refugees into my house. So when you come home, there'll be another seven people living in the house. And he was like, okay, what do I do about that? Nothing, fine. And uh, that's how we got into this whole, the whole idea that when the simple people are doing that, what well, we can't help. And uh, we got into this and, you know, again, our hope and prayer is that we can leave it very quickly. But at the present moment, this is what needs to be done. And so we'll fulfill the request to be able to do what we can. Wow, are you educating me and my audience that the Polish people, maybe this is their true character showing through? Um, or maybe it's the result of them experiencing 
uh, Western civilization and in the modern world. And uh, I, I feel that way about Ukraine. But before we get into modern times and and how living in Western democracy maybe civilizes you more, what was going on in Ukraine that they were so anti-Semitic and helpful to the Nazis, say at Bobby R? Because what I heard you say is, you got the Poles who were really dominated, have some compassion, Rachmanis for them, Craig. But Ukraine, they were a little different. Did I hear that right? And if so, why were they a little different back then? So again, I'm, I'm very careful not to take a whole country and to uh, generalize about the mm-hmm. whole people. I, I can't do such a thing. Um, and I'm very careful about that. There were Ukrainians that did some very bad things to the Jewish people. And um, and I think that there's there's a number of reasons that are involved here. It could have well been that the anti-Semitism that there was on that side as well. And again, both of us know the reason that your, pair, your family moved from the Pale of Settlement, maybe to Lodge or straight to America, is for two reasons. Poverty, okay, and the pogroms, okay, anti-Semitism. And that's why they left. Um, uh, and so anti-Semitism was a big part of the world, and, and it was fueled as well, uh, unfortunately, much by, by the church. And that's why John Paul II was the first pope to request forgiveness from the Jewish people. Um, and he said, for 2,000 years of anti-Semitism with the church. So, you know, that, we, that was part of it. And on the other side, you have to remember something else. Poverty was immense and intense as well in the Ukraine. And when you're offered the possibility of getting salary, offered the possibility of being able to look after your family, you do certain things which are very questionable. And I think a person that's got morals and ethics would never do that. But if you're, if you're blinded by this, unfortunately, and you, you're not educated, and that was the case by much of the people there, then, uh, you know, and, they, and you're fueled by this anti-Semitism, then they'll do it. And uh, they were, those that, w- those that worked with the Nazis were intensely anti-Semitic against the Jew. Intensely. That's fascinating. And I'm thinking about Poland. I'm older than you. I remember Pope John Paul, the big difference he made. He was from Poland. I remember Lech Walesa, who was a major part yeah. of the Iron Curtain coming down. Poland really has a rich history. Tell us about those two guys, John Paul, Lech Walesa, and what it, what it meant to Poland. So John Paul II, of course, was, um, uh, as you said, he came from uh, Poland. He came very, actually from very close to Krakow. He also became a, a priest within Krakow. Um, and Pope John, the Paul, even, Pope John Paul II, even though uh, he probably should have been, he wasn't, he, maybe he just didn't want to accept it. He did many things within the war that would consider him righteous amongst the nation. Okay, he helped out Jewish families, and we know that very clearly. Um, so uh, that's, that's number one. Lech Walesa, of course, is the main figure in 1989 that will turn Poland from being communist to having democracy. He ran a movement that was known as the Solidarity Movement, or Solidarność, that was what it was called in Poland. 
And there was a, a uprising here of people who stood in front of the tank, stopped the Russians in their, in their tracks and told them no more and kicked the Russians out in 1989. The Polish people and the Polish economy um, is totally different to what many North Americans think. I know many North Americans have never visited uh, this part of Europe and they think they're going to see like very depressed and gray and everything. You come to Poland today, it's a completely different society like any Western society. Still got the culture of Europe, but it's very, very Western society with everything that you'd expect with all the high-tech firms that we know of in North America. They have a branch here. With all the big finance firms they have in North America, they have branches here as well. And so it's a very different society. And it stems again from that idea. Enough of communism. We want to now be, be, the, be the deciders of destiny of our own people. And that's what they did. And today, um, they have a thriving democracy here. Isn't that what this current battle is really about? Democracy versus autocracy? And it sounds like Poland has really embraced democracy. Ukraine was on its way. And isn't that the one thing that Putin cannot tolerate because he's a tyrant? He, he cannot stand a true democracy on his borders? I think so. But I don't, I, again, I think Poland has no, no problems um, or no fears. Even though there's been a, a raise, they say there's been a seven-fold seven raise of people um, volunteering for the army here or for the home guard here um, because Russia's on their borders. I don't think they've got any worries about Putin even thinking about coming here. The American soldiers are here as well, everywhere. Patriot missiles are here from America. Um, lots of American, uh, uh, you know, the American uh, hardware is here. So I don't think they're worried about it. But at the same time, that's what he's basically told Ukraine. Yeah, you're right. You brought up the church. Now we have the Russian Orthodox Church. I'm no expert on that. I know they have uh, a connection to Kiev. And I know that they think that they're the true conduit of Christianity, maybe as opposed to Rome. Putin wears that cross around his neck. Do you think any part of this is religious? I don't think so. No. Because you don't think don't Putin think so is, Do you think Putin is genuinely a religious man? Uh, he probably is. He's just like uh, like uh, many of the other leaders that, that have to also show various different things like that. You know, even, I'm not even going to say that Mahmoud Abbas is very religious, okay? Well, at least wasn't, yeah, from uh, the PA. But he knows that he has to show that in order to keep the support. And that's the same case with many, many leaders. And, and this isn't a religious attack. This is more land grab, okay, and bringing back home uh, Ukraine. It's not about, it's not about uh, um, the Russian church against the Catholic church. Is it genocide? Does he have something personally against Ukrainians? It seems no, like he's trying think, to punish them. Yeah, I don't think there's genocide involved here. Uh, I mean, I met somebody, I had a meeting this morning with somebody who's just come out of the Ukraine. And he's, uh, he's taking a, a few days off and then he's going back to the Ukraine. Um, so uh, um, I met with, uh, met with him this morning and he said to me, there's, you know, there's, it's not that they're putting people up against the wall and shooting them, because they're not. Um, but they, uh, there is, uh, unfortunately, many people dying from the bombing of the Russians in various different cities. Of course, Kiev hasn't been attacked that way yet. Um, and it could well be. It's been, they're trying to surround it, but they haven't managed to. They've only surrounded the top, uh, top half of Kiev. They haven't managed to surround it completely in a full circle. 
And it seems like the Russians themselves are not being very successful. Um, what, uh, what happens next? Um, I, 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 I wish I knew what the end game was. I don't know what the end game is. Um, like, I, I really don't understand what the, what the end game is going to be for, for Putin. I would say that the, uh, what happens next for the, for the refugees, they hope that they're going to be able to go home. And I'll say that from the point of view that we know that in Lvov, in um, excuse me, in uh, in um, the uh, excuse me, the trains going back to Lvov have around about 300, 400 people on every train going back into Lvov today. So we know that people do want to be able to go home. That's first of all. However, it seems that what's really going to take place is there's going to be a migration of people, and communities may change because of it. So when you talk about the Jewish community. Okay, there's a good possibility Jewish communities of Europe will change because there'll be an influx of Ukrainian people into those communities. Um, and, uh, you know, then they're going to have to start speaking Russian and uh, whatever it may be. Uh, it's, I very much hope that it's helping in the, to, to ease the suffering of these refugees. But it's going to be a long, long, drawn-out process. This is not an issue of even if the war comes to, a, to, to an end with NATO's conference that they're having now with Biden here, and they manage to come into agreement, you're going to have a long, long uh, haul uh, until things are back to normal in this region. It seems like it's a terrorist campaign designed to make the people leave, and you're telling me that a lot of them are going back. So... Um, I just don't see how Putin can possibly succeed, and eventually Russia will, if they're logical, which I don't know, but I'm just trying to sort how this will end, and I don't see Ukraine ever giving up, do you? I don't think so. I think Zelensky will fight to the, to, to the very end, and he'll, he will be very, very successful. Um, really, could be very, very successful from it. Uh, and Putin, I, I don't. I think he's got oh, some choice at the moment. But I'm, again, I'm not a political analyst. Right. I don't know. Uh, I'm just telling you from the person, from a person that's down on the ground. Again, we're here to work with the refugees to try and help them. Well, God and, bless uh, you for I doing just, uh, that. Yeah. They, and and I know you, you don't have answers. Thank you very much. No, let me just ask you one more, or let me ask you a couple more questions sure. about the Jewish people, if I could. Ukrainian yeah. Jews. How many are there? In the refugee population, what percentage are Jewish people? Okay, so the answer is we don't know. Okay, we have no idea. Uh, I'm finding Jewish people all over the place in various different refugee centers. Um, uh, we're being asked to come to all sorts of places to help. For instance, we were asked to go to a convent. Okay, Jewish organization, come to the convent. We went to the convent. We, uh, we found out, by the way, that convent hid Jews in the Second World War. And also today they had three Jewish families that were there. So we helped them take, uh, go get towards Israel. So you should know that they're everywhere. They really are. They're everywhere. And how many of them speak Yiddish? You've heard me sprinkle no, in a bezel of they, Yiddish. Yeah, they, they don't. They don't? Yeah. Uh, they Ukrainian or Russian much more. It's not really, uh, excuse me, it's, it's not really Yiddish. At least they might haven't spoken to me in Yiddish. Anyway, listen, I think you're doing God's work. I encourage everybody to Thank go you. to jroots.org. And 
I like what you said about the righteous among the nations. I did go through Yad Vashem. I'm sure you've been there. And that display of the righteous Gentile, the righteous of the world, it's beautiful yeah. to see that Poland's stepping up now because it's not just for the Jewish people. It's for anybody who's nope. under attack. And uh, I, I see a smile on your face and hear it in your voice because I'm taking positivity from your call because the people of Poland, the people of Ukraine are strong and they are righteous. And there are a lot of righteous yeah. people helping them like you. Way to go. Respond to that, if you would. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I think you're 100% right. I, I do believe there's there's positivity uh, from, from what we've seen here. You've seen the good side of humanity here. You know, many times you don't understand whether human, yeah, humanity is showing an evil face or good. This is the good side of the humanity that we've seen uh, as well. Unfortunately, across the border, we're seeing the evil side uh, with uh, Putin. Um, but uh, this should be the one that shines through. And does this disrupt your business? I bet you have a lot of people coming to Poland to take yeah. tours. Are they still yeah. going to yeah, do it? Yeah, of course it? it does. Of course it does, but we're, we're carrying on at the same time. We're just working doubly hard. Well, get back to work, will you? Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Jroots.org. What a great to all the people in Denver. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor. Or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple Podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review, and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Hey, I hope you liked that show. I loved talking to Svi Sperber. Tsvi, T-S-V-I, Sperber, S-P-E-R-B-E-R. Dave Gunders, my gosh. Every week, you deliver friendship and a haunting, beautiful song. And Judge Jackson, what can I say? You are a legend. You are a role model. You've done it all in the law. I'm proud of you, a George Washington guy. Go Patriots! Hey, if you like the show, tell a friend, subscribe, give us a lot of stars. You know what to do. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. 
Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.